Welcome to the Young Farmers Food Safety Focus Group Series. I'm Maggie Kaiser, the Produce Safety Training Coordinator for the National Young Farmers Coalition. Throughout the summer of 2020, I, along with Bree Sliker, Billy Mitchell, and farmer facilitators from across the country, hosted a series of focus groups with farmers where we discussed the challenges and successes of implementing various on-farm produce safety practices. And we recorded them because we want these conversations to be a resource for you. In every session, we bring together farmers with similar experiences for a discussion about a specific farm food safety topic. We begin each one with a farmer presentation followed by a roundtable discussion where farmers share problems and solutions with one another. We hope you enjoy them and find some practical information for your farm. Hi everyone, my name is Maggie Kaiser. I'm the Produce Safety Training Coordinator with the National Young Farmers Coalition on the Business Services team. And I'm also a farmer and nursery grower in New Orleans and part of our local chapter of the National Young Farmers Coalition that's here in New Orleans. I just wanna mention real quick, the goal of this focus group is to create a space for all of you um, to troubleshoot produce safety issues um, around certain topics. So today's topic is farm to school. Um, it'll be with other farmers, but also we'll have a number of service providers on the call today. So I think that will offer a really interesting dynamic. Um, and it's also helpful, or this focus group is will help us understand better the day-to-day -day food safety challenges and solutions on small-scale produce farms. So we're gonna go around and do some introductions now. And Bree and Billy, I'll ask you to go first since you're two of the other people that are helping facilitate these focus groups. Um, and then we'll pass it around from there. So Bree, would you like to go first? Yeah, absolutely. Hi everyone, thanks for being here. Uh, my name's Bree and I am currently interning with the business services team in Maggie at National Young Farmer Coalition. And uh, currently, I'm actually a graduate student at NYU in the Food Studies program. Uh, hey, y'all. My name's Billy Mitchell. I work for the National Farmers Union, um, doing food safety education around the country. I also do farm to school work in Georgia, which is where I live, in Brunswick, Georgia, on the coast. Um, and before this, I was a vegetable farmer and sold successfully and unsuccessfully to a couple of schools. Uh, my name is Natalie. I have been in the farming world for a few years now. I taught environmental ed, managed farmers markets, and then became a farmer myself um, in Park City, Utah. Um, and currently this year I made a switch and I'm managing um, a community garden. Um, and then during the school year, during the winter, I actually teach in a school. So I was just very interested in figuring out how within Park City we can kind of bridge those gaps. So I'm excited to be here. I'm Ashley. I'm from Kansas City. I run two farms. I run an urban farm called Spitlock Farm. We provide uh, food and education to 40 families and five early education centers and five grade schools. Um, we also do farm to school education. So I, I go into schools and teach. And before, before everything happened, we were starting garden clubs and cooking clubs mm -hmm. and had lots of plans. Um, so that's kind of the reason why I'm here is to kind of see what everyone else is doing because the challenges are, are pretty 
pretty high right now for how we're going to get farm to school back into, you know, the classroom. Um, and then also uh, the food and service director has canceled local food for right now just because they don't want to handle the liabilities. So we're having some issues there as well. Um, so I kind of just wanted to hear what, how everyone's working with other people and um, like basically the challenges that you guys have been facing as well. I'm Elena Paisano. I'm a program manager with the National Farm to School Network. Um, and we're working on this producer training program right now. And so part of my goal in being here today is hopefully mutual. It's that piece of learning what are some of the innovations that are happening on the ground that are helping producers can continue to keep a foot in the door or what are those needs um, so that we can start targeting our training program and then at the National Farm to School Network also to start targeting more of our producer training work in a broader sense. Hello, I am Erica Rincon. I am the uh, New York State campaign organizer for the National Young Farmers Coalition, but in my other life, I am the farm school coordinator for the Beacon City School District. So I'm here a little in both capacities today, although mainly as a farm school coordinator, um, and I'm here just to listen in, ask questions, and hear what everyone's experience is. I will invite um, Sarah Simon. Thank you, Erica. It's nice to see you. Erica and I worked together for a long time, and it's great to have her here today to tag team the presentation piece, too, um, where I'll be talking a little bit about the work I was doing as farm director at Common Ground Farm, which is a farm and food justice organization that I'll talk more about later. But currently I'm in Maine where I just started a new role as director of farm viability and farmland access programs at the Maine Farmland Trust. Looking forward to talking with all of you and hearing about your experiences. I think Sebastian is the only one who hasn't gone yet. My name is Sebastian and I'm from Vitality Farms Company. We've been farming in Lakeland, Florida for about a year and a half. We're not in schools at this point but Ultimately, our goal is to increase the nutrition at the school level. And so I'm excited to learn everything. That's great. Thank you, everyone. I'm so happy to know all of you. At this point, I'm going to pass it to you, Sarah. Great. So I'm really excited to share with all of you our experience um, with Farm to School Sales and hear from you because this was really something where I think we felt like we were kind of flying blind to some extent just feeling confused about how to go about connecting with the school and all of the different rules and regulations. And we spent a lot of time figuring that out. So I'm excited to share what we did um, and learn from all of you, because I think this is such an important area for farms to be getting into and exploring as a real market opportunity. So like I mentioned, I was previously the farm director at Common Ground Farm. So that was my role for five years. And I was running the farm and also serving as director for the organization as a whole and for different programs that we operated running farmers markets and nutrition incentive programs and things like that with a really strong focus on food access. Um, and now I am at the main farmland trust in my new role. So for today, I am going to be talking about common ground and our experience selling to the Beacon city school district. So common ground is located in Beacon, New York, which is in the Hudson Valley, right along the river about 70 miles north of New York City. Uh, so a really vibrant area that has really 
changed and grown in recent years. A lot of people are moving there from New York City. A lot of people commute down to the city from Beacon. And so overall, really a very fertile place for a community farm. Common Ground is a community farm, a nonprofit that has been in existence for about 20 years. The farm leases land on land that's owned by New York State and we lease through an intermediary nonprofit. So it's a very complicated land uh, arrangement, uh, growing about five acres of diversified vegetables. The farm also runs a lot of education programs. So a summer camp, cooking programs in the public schools, offering field trips on the farm for the local school district, as well as other schools. And that was really where our relationship with the school district began. In 2016, we started donating produce to the Beacon City School District. And in 2017, we started selling, typically anywhere around $2,000 a year, so not a huge amount of produce annually through a CSA-style arrangement. The farm is not GAP certified. So that was our food safety challenge, and it was something we were able to successfully navigate and still sell to our local school district. Once we had set all of this up, we wondered if it was all legal. And so through a connection with the Pace Law School Food Law Clinic, we asked them to do some research and help us figure out our own arrangement and also create a guide for other farmers in New York State. And so in the process, we learned that our arrangement was legal, which was great news. And we also ended up with a free guide for New York farmers, uh, which I linked to here. And I can send this around afterwards, too. It is from 2018, and the world moves fast in this area in particular. So some things have already changed. It is targeted to New York State. But as I'll talk about in a moment, a lot of these laws are really federal laws that apply to school food procurement. So parts of it are relevant, and it's a really user-friendly guide. It was designed to be useful for farmers, um, and it was useful to us. So hopefully that could be helpful to you. So I wanted to start um, with just describing how we built a relationship with the school district. We, as a nonprofit, this was a part of our mission and something that we were able to do. Uh, So here you see me out in the field a couple years ago, a bunch of kids and a bunch of kale. Um, (laughs) That's really where it all starts, getting the kids out there, showing them what the vegetables look like. And we also offer a cooking component so that they're actually trying the food on the farm. And I just wanted to emphasize this piece because even if you are a full-time farmer and this is not something that's within your time or area of expertise, finding your local nonprofits or PTA boards, school boards, these are really your allies to create the desire and demand for local produce in schools. We really learned how important this was when we decided to talk with another school district about selling produce the Newburgh City School District, which is right across the Hudson River from Beacon. And their response was, we just don't think kids are going to eat turnips. And we realized that in Beacon, we had really spent years prior to selling turnips to the school, adding kids to the farm, showing them the turnips, getting them to cook the turnips and try them. And so we had confidence that the kids would eat these things. And more importantly, the food service director in Beacon had confidence that the kids would eat these things. So I really think that that educational piece is very important, both increasing the demand for kids to actually want to eat the local vegetables and also to build your relationship with the schools. So in addition to the field trips on the farm, uh, cooking classes in the schools, Common Ground has a summer camp program, 
We also did some work getting fresh produce from our farm into the school backpack program, which is a program where kids from food insecure families were receiving backpacks full of food each week, typically coming from the food bank, so shelf-stable stuff, but we really worked to get fresh veggies in. We also worked with the school to highlight the veggie of the month, um, and so to pick a different veggie each month and offer a taste test and a meal in the um, school cafeterias for kids to try the veggies. And that was a huge partnership and collaboration with the school district and the garden nonprofit and really the kind of uh, relationship building that I was describing. The last piece that we did was actually to offer professional development for food service directors. Um, This was really a surprise to me and may not be to the rest of you, but most school kitchens really don't resemble kitchens. They're sort of glorified microwaves and and they really don't Mm. do a lot of fresh food processing. So depending on your school district, they may not have the capacity and capability to even make good use of the fresh veggies. um, And they may even lack ovens, for example. So that's a real capacity problem that we addressed in a few different ways, partly by offering this training and then also uh, trying to help get some funding for the school district. And so again, it's beyond the scope of what a farmer could or would want to provide, but finding your allies and local groups around you uh, was really important in our experience. So we got started by donating, uh, and this was a really great arrangement for us. It wasn't a huge amount of produce, but the idea was, again, the relationship building and showing them the beautiful lettuce. Um, That's usually pretty effective, as we all know. In 2017, um, I moved, was promoted from being on the farm crew to being the farm director, And I started exploring a sales arrangement. And so what we trialed and ended up continuing to the present is a CSA style sales arrangement known as a micro purchase agreement. So because the value of this is less than $10,000, we were able to put together an agreement where we outlined the different kinds of produce we were going to provide to the schools throughout the year. We would meet in the winter, we would talk that through, We would typically try and do about a month's worth of lettuce in the spring and another month in the fall. And then we would offer the vegetable of the month because that was, again, this kind of focal point in the school cafeteria that we really wanted to provide a local item for. And we provided snacks throughout the summer. So Mm. something worth knowing if you're not aware is that many school districts do offer summer meals programs. And so there is a sales opportunity throughout the summer even though it was less of a significant amount of produce um, than would normally be going out during the school year. We did establish pricing based on comparable numbers from last year's season. So pricing is a bit of a challenge. The school food service directors do need to show that their pricing is comparable to what's available on the wholesale market at large. And so they can, on certain items in our experience, offer a slight premium for local items But for the most part, they needed to make sure that they weren't showing any kind of favoritism. So Karen, who's the food service director in Beacon, would look at what romaine lettuce sold for last spring, and we'd put in an approximate price. And that allowed me to make the decision about whether the price was worthwhile for us. Um, And it meant that she was conducting her due diligence and making sure that she wasn't, you know, going to pay way more for our lettuce than she would be for other comparable local lettuce. Um, So again, she was making the comparison to local products, which is important because the lettuce coming from across the country might be priced very differently. But the pricing was a challenge because we were having to go on these estimates in the winter season 
And things could change in the wholesale market between when we made this agreement in the summer. Although I will say, I don't recall that ever being an issue. It never happened in our situation that all of a sudden the price for romaine lettuce had plummeted. So again, we're not GAP certified. Um, So that is a challenge. What we learned through our later research with the law school clinic is that GAP certification isn't a requirement for school districts. It is rather a recommendation, and a lot of school districts do require it, but ours did not. And so what Karen decided to do was to do an in-person food safety inspection. So a lot of the Mm -hmm. same things that a GAP certifier would be looking for, but she did it herself, and she took the time to come to the farm. So again, I think that's the relationship-building piece. Um, most of what we were doing was fine. I mean, you know, we're doing a lot of the good organic standards, testing our water once a year, washing our plastic bins, storing things cold, all of that sort of pretty basic stuff. Um, we did have a request from her to start sanitizing our wash water, which is something that was pretty easy to start doing. That was important to her. And she also asked that we not use burlap on the vegetable bins. Um, And we were previously wetting and reusing burlap to keep things humid. But because we were reusing it, that was a food safety concern. Mm -hmm. So pretty minor requests um, to change our practices. She did ask about excluding animals from the field, which um, is hard. That's that's really a challenge. you know, Canada geese were a big problem on our farm and they would just fly in. And as far as I can tell, there's not much you can do about it, short of going out there with a, a gun if you need to. Um, and that was actually not even an option for us because we were on state land. So that was an issue and it was something we were eventually able to address. Um, we had some plastic deer fencing that was not completely effective. Um, and so the concern about deer poop in the field that was very real. I mean, that was something that we would see on a regular basis. So we dealt with that ultimately by investing in a metal deer fence, which is quite expensive um, and was difficult for us to commit to doing on leased land. But we felt like it was really going to be worthwhile for food safety and, of course, also to prevent our plants from being eaten by deer. Another challenge was just getting the produce to the schools. We were very fortunate that our farm just happens to be across the street from where the school district stores their school buses. And so they were able to come and pick up the produce, which is a pretty big deal. Uh, So again, that's something that differs case to case. For us, it wasn't an issue, but I could see it being uh, a challenge. And then, as I mentioned, the pricing was another um, adjustment to make. Uh, The pricing, again, reflects a lot of wholesale pricing on the commodity market, which is lower than a lot of small, diversified local veggie farms are used to selling. And so we found that there were some items that demanded a lot of hand labor for us in our systems, like potatoes and beans that really weren't worthwhile to sell. But we found other items like lettuce and basil that were pretty cost effective for us, given that we were selling a thousand heads of lettuce a week during these months. It felt really worthwhile, especially as a small farm that really could grow that amount of lettuce, but probably could not have moved that amount of lettuce through our other farmers markets and sales channels. So we set all of that up and then we wondered, is this really legal? (laughs) And uh, that's when we pulled in the food law clinic and we learned that it was, again, in our particular situation. Our understanding, at least at the time, is that the food safety rules can vary a lot from district to district. So some districts will require GAP. And also that I believe under the federal produce procurement guidelines, 
under $10,000, you can create these kinds of micro-purchase arrangements, which can include kind of unusual restrictions like local purchasing, wanting to receive bids only from local growers, and which don't need to, don't have the same stringent competitive bid requirements that you would have to follow for food service directors seeking to purchase in larger amounts. Um, So typically, there's both, at least in New York State, there is an informal bid process and a formal bid process, depending on kind of the threshold that the food service director is going to spend. And they can set certain parameters, but they're kind of beholden to whoever puts in the lowest bid. Whereas for the micro purchases, the food service directors have a lot more latitude. So for our, our situation, we thought it made sense to stay below that threshold. And we were able to create this micro purchase agreement which really resembled a CSA where we were agreeing to provide all of these different kinds of produce uh, throughout the season. So I'm happy to explain more about the formal bidding, at least as much as I understand it from our work with Pace Food Law Clinic, if people are interested, um, but also eager to hear about your experiences navigating these, these processes, because this was really a source of tension for Karen, at least, you know, she gets audited each year and Mm. has to make sure that, all of her purchases match up and will withstand scrutiny and are sufficiently competitive. So she was pretty concerned about this and we were glad to find that it seemed to be allowable. And that's it. That's all I wanted to share. I'm excited to talk with all of you. It felt really scary when we started doing it and a little bit insurmountable, I think, to figure out how we could get paid and work through all the logistics but we were really excited to be able to do this, at least in this very local way. Um, and would love to chat with other people to hear about how you dealt with some of the challenges. I think first, if anyone has any questions for Sarah regarding anything she shared in her presentation, that's probably a good good place to get us going. I have a question. Um, I don't have experience with this, uh, directly selling to school, but I would like to know uh, when you approach Newburgh, school district, and they gave you that answer of, I don't think kids are going to go for it. What kind of response would you address that? Like, what is appropriate and how to navigate that really tricky question of, I think they would if you gave it a chance? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, That was something we struggled with a lot. And I think just to give a quick backstory, um, I think a lot of why Newburgh was more challenging, we understood because the city itself is so different from Beacon. So Beacon's population, I think, is around 15,000 people, a lot of people from New York City, and it happens to be on the train line to New York. So this is kind of common throughout the Hudson Valley that the cities on the train side end up being more gentrified, more people commuting to the city than the cities who are not on the train side. And so Newburgh is across the river on the non-train side, 30,000 people, much more racially diverse, a larger immigrant population, um, and a larger poverty rate as well. So it's a really different demographic than in Beacon. And I think when we talked to the food service director, part of what she was saying was the kids here won't go for that. I think she also emphasized that her primary concern was just feeding a lot of kids who were coming from food insecure households. I had meant to mention this in my presentation, actually, and also I'll mention it now. Um, there's a different school districts are community eligible, which 
means that all the kids there receive free meals and Newburgh is community eligible. So I think that was the difference as well. Um, Beacon is not community eligible, which means that the kids in the cafeteria are purchasing meals. And so I think part of the incentive for Karen to work with us was that her meals would be more attractive to parents who wanted to feed their kids healthy food. And so she could kind of market herself by saying, I'm buying from local farms. In a community eligible school district like Newburgh, kids are just going to eat whatever's there regardless. There's not the same need to try to sell the product. I also, I think that the food service director just wasn't a local food champion yet. So our reaction coming away from that was we need to kind of work on her and (laughs) and show her the value of this through programming. So that was our initial response, um, which we were able to do as a nonprofit was to think, okay, what kinds of programs can we introduce to create the demand for the kids and to build the relationship with the food service director as well. It's a huge job. I just, for those of you who haven't interacted with food service directors yet in your lives, they're, they're kind of superheroes. I mean, they are responsible for so, so much designing the menus and managing the staff and it's, it's just a big job. So we were pretty receptive to her just feeling overwhelmed by the thought of buying local, but we did think, you know, I think we can do this if we build the relationships. I can just add one more little piece of the relationship with the Newburgh Food Service Director, having kind of continued this relationship building um, in my capacity as the farm to school coordinator in Beacon, uh, is that she and other food service directors in the area have expressed a lot of confusion around how to purchase locally. And they have been very clear that they feel like there is a lack of training from the USDA when it comes to local procurement and that that was a major frustration, I would say, not just like a barrier, but like an actual like thing that was making her mad. And it's so complicated that, you know, I can't blame her at all, but it's extra complicated because these regulations do change frequently. And you will hear from many different stakeholders that certain things will be allowed or not allowed. And then you hear when it comes time for reimbursement that this was not allowed or that you weren't record keeping in the correct way. And that has caused and cost school districts lots of money in the past when you find out after the facts that you're not being reimbursed. So that can also be a major barrier. A lot of counties now, at least in New York State, do have farm school coordinators, many of whom have much more procurement knowledge than I do, but working with them to help build those relationships and navigate that procurement process has been really helpful. And also just continuing to complain back that there needs to be more clarity in the process. I have a question for those that are on this call that already have relationships with schools. What is that relationship looking like right now? And what are you planning for the fall? And for those that don't have relationships yet with schools, but this is something that you had maybe hoped you were, you were going to be working on, like, are you still pursuing it? Like how, how have things changed? And I know it's July, but I am just kind of curious how you are thinking about the future. Um, How many people in here actually already sell to schools right now or deliver food to schools? 
Okay. Um, so we, I, I guess one thing I would say that for what Sarah was saying about the challenges with um, schools and then being open to new vegetables and stuff like that, one, we are right across the street from the school as well. So the kids get to come over and work in our farm as well. Um, and then we've started to partner and expand out to other schools. One of them being that we, because we're a nonprofit, we partnered with uh, Guadalupe Center that went after a Health Forward grant that basically worked on revamping their kitchens. So we worked with them to do kitchen assessments. And we were just beginning to start um, scheduling training for their for their chefs. And then we were even going to try to, because one of them's a high school, was to get the kids like food safety handlers permits. Mm -hmm. So it would be like killing two birds with one stone, being able to not only get them to work with the food and help prep it mm -hmm. for the school, um, but they would also learn a skill while they were there. Um, so we have to go back to the drawing board right now what we're doing is early education centers because early education centers have lost a lot of funding. We are applying for grants that will help us purchase food from local farmers to provide to families um, or to these institutions because my farm, Splitlog can't handle everyone, you know. Okay. So our goal is to partner with other um, organizations and other farmers in order to uh, get food to people and one of the ways we did that was through tastings. So we would have a chef come in and do tastings in the, in the cafeterias and the kids would be able to try different types of food. Um, and I think that that is a, a really great way if you are going to reach out to a school to offer to do tastings or, um, you know, offer to do a cooking class in one of their cooking classes or something along those lines. I was getting involved in their life skills with their life skills coaches to teach and to get connected. And then that's where um, you can really get some excitement going. Um, and for the future, we don't really know what's going to happen. <laughs> Everything is just kind of up in the air. So we're just trying to feed as many people as we can on the side. Billy and Elena, I also want to invite you to answer this question. If you have, if you have any intel about other farmers that you know of and kind of what they're planning. Sure. I, um, I work with the National Farm School Network now, but previously I worked in the state of New Mexico to help really expand our farm and cafeteria work. And it was all rooted in that fine balance between business and program, right? And having that partner for the programmatic support, I think is so, so critical. Uh, we see that the schools that do have that right now are sharing a little better in terms of accessing things like CACFP or summer food than farms that you know have no relationships um, with schools and vice versa. So here in New Mexico, the farmers that I've worked with and that are still selling to schools, they've managed to sort of continue the level of sales and volume of sales. But honestly, um, there's been very little to no, as far as I know, interest in establishing new vendors in these systems for local food. The schools just don't have the capacity to take on the little bit of extra work that that is. Having that program partner, ideally from a nonprofit or a community service like Boys and Girls or, you know, depending on what your community looks like. And then also, you know, those with the relationships in place seem to be able to continue to access 
um, some of the farmers that have done it for a few years are willing to co-op. So like in a real mm. casual way, like, hey, let me see if I can help you market some in um, to fill the gaps. And so that's been kind of promising with things like melons or tomatoes, things that are easier to sort of aggregate um, in a low-tech way, things that aren't as high of food safety issues. I think that's something we're kind of trying to track with some examples here in New Mexico, Arizona. Well, yeah, I mean, I think there's an incredible amount of uncertainty. Like Elena said, to take on even an extra thing right now just feels insurmountable. And for the smaller ones that are exploring it, they're all the parents are asking about food safety. There's no evidence to show that you can get coronavirus, COVID-19 from food. Um, parents are definitely asking about cleaning, sanitizing, how it's going to be delivered. So there's some kind of new considerations for farms that are exploring those markets. No one had talked about post-harvest stations yet. One of the things that I have challenges with is, you know, they require certain types of sanitization. So that was a personal question I had for this. Mm -hmm. Like I wanted to know what you guys were using to sanitize with that is organic. Yeah, that's a, that was a big like learning curve for us too. <laughs> we hadn't been using any sanitizer. Um, we ended up buying an Omri certified sanitizer. So it was like a chemical, but organically approved. I can look up the exact name and, and send that to you. I can't remember. It's not coming back to me. Do you remember Erica by chance? No, I'll find the brand name. Um, it was very like noxious. So you have to dilute it and we had to come up with systems for diluting it to use it in the wash water. It, that was definitely a requirement for ours that things needed to be washed and packed. Um, and we do have a cooler and I'm not sure that that's necessarily a requirement, but I think they were interested in having the cold storage capacity as well for food safety reasons. So that might be something just to keep in mind. Um, I also, we didn't pursue gap certification, but Cornell Cooperative Extension in New York state has some pretty nice um, kind of bare bones gap certified gap eligible wash setups then and it made me think seeing their setup that ours might even have been eligible um, similar wash areas they just used a little wire cover for the table because that can be an issue sometimes what the table surface is made from so they had just found some kind of creative low-cost ways to set up a gap eligible system um, so that was pretty neat to see uh, a problem that we had that I, I didn't mention before is that because the land is leased from the state, we always had real constraints around putting in any sort of permanent infrastructure. So basically any permanent mm. building, anything that might have a concrete floor or a real foundation was off the table. So that was a challenge because one of the things we would have liked to do for school sales is to think about having year-round wash capacity. At any rate, it was that was always the real challenge for us too, was whenever we wanted to think about enclosing our wash station, it currently only has a roof. And also, Ashley, I just said, you said you're researching bio-sur... What was the word that you said? Biosurficants. I don't know anything about biosurficants. So it's essentially... <laughs> It would be like, it, it's good bacteria, essentially. So yeah. it'd be the same thing. Have you ever heard of using kombucha to clean with? Um, it's the same, yeah, like same acid. Use yeah. good bacteria. And that kills any other bad bacteria. That way you're, you're doing it in the most sustainable way possible uh, without adding any chemicals into the soil. And then I'm also looking into the same thing just for 
soil replenishment. Billy, do you have, have you seen anything around biosurfing? Yeah, I've, I've heard of it yeah. before. I know that there's research on it in the food industry. And thanks for whoever put that link in for the Omri approved. So there are organic sanitizers, which are still chemicals. But really, at the end of the day, I would make sure that there's some type of scientific study to make sure that it's really addressing those produce safety risks. And then double check with your buyer to make sure that it's going to meet their expectations as well. But there's, there's definitely a lot of interesting research around there. I just don't know if there's enough to convince a school just because oftentimes kids can have weaker immune systems than adults. And so they might set a higher standard. Yeah. And um, this is Elena again. I just want to jump in to say, I know that there's been right, a lot of work done on trying to align FISMA for those FDA requirements with organic standards and some of these things like biosurfacants and other cleaners are, it's a part of the dialogue. I would say super helpful to have you bring it up directly because we can have someone in our policy team take a look into that specifically since that is, they're still taking recommendations um, for state level implementation. So the federal rules are established, but the states have to figure out how to do it. And so there's still this moment where if there's demand like this, it's great to be able to funnel. So um, and I would say also with the schools, the standard is always a little bit different, but right now people are moving closer to GAP certification requirement because FISMA, that said, it's a state level issue. And as far as I know, I think Arizona is one of the only states that mandates it. So it's a barrier, uh, but a little bit of relationship building and a little bit of local level advocacy can also change that. I found, so it's the bioscience agriculture cleaning products, and it can be used in all sorts of applications throughout the farm. Cool. Thanks for sharing that, Ashley. And I'll, um, I copied all the links from the chat box so I can send them out to everyone in an email after this. I just wanted to see if there were any lingering questions or comments from anyone on the call. Um, I will say that just reading this, it says that it fights things like salmonella, staph, strep, E. coli, all of those viruses, which is cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for sharing this. I'm interested to learn more about this for sure. And with that, thanks so much. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Maggie. Have a good day, guys. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our Produce Safety Focus Group series. For visuals from the presentations, more information on this series and other produce safety resources, visit youngfarmers.org slash focus groups. This podcast was edited by Hannah Beal and recorded in partnership with the National Farmers Union Foundation over the summer of 2020 as part of our FSOP Produce Safety Programming.